This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is now available wherever books are sold. Just go to christyharrison.com slash book to order it online, or pop into your local independent bookstore and ask for Anti-Diet. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of Anti-Diet. Join me here every week as I talk with fellow anti-diet advocates about their journeys toward peace with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey there, welcome to episode 228 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Elise Resch, fellow anti-diet dietitian and co-author of the book Intuitive Eating, for her second appearance on the pod. We discuss what to expect in the upcoming fourth edition of Intuitive Eating, how intuitive eating might look different in eating disorder recovery and food insecurity, eating intuitively at different developmental stages of life, her new intuitive eating workbook for teens, how not to turn intuitive eating into a diet, and so much more. I cannot wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. It's always so good to talk with Elise. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named rsweet81 who writes, Thanks so much for your podcast. My eating habits have been inarguably unhealthy for as long as I can remember. My relationship with food has been disordered since I was about 13. I'm nearly 29 now with two young kids, a boy and a girl. I'm still confused about what I should be eating, and I end up eating too much at irregular times, and it's often junk. My confusion about how I should be eating is compounded by diet culture, being a picky eater slash vegetarian. Last year, despite appearing quite fit and healthy, I learned that my cholesterol is high. How can I improve my relationship with food while getting my cholesterol on track? I don't know what messages to listen to. So thanks, our sweet 81 for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So before I talk about cholesterol, I want to point out that it sounds from your question like you're doing a lot of restrictive eating without really knowing it. The fact that you say you end up eating quote-unquote too much, and that it's often quote-unquote junk at irregular times, and that you're also a picky eater, tells me that you're restricting. Because whenever anyone is binge eating or sees themselves as eating quote-unquote too much of the quote-unquote wrong things— Odds are they're actually restricting because restriction is what drives binging, and restriction is so common in diet culture. And yes, of course, there's a small percentage of people who started binging initially without restriction being involved at all. They just happen to stumble into binging as a way to cope with emotions, often in childhood as a response to trauma. A lot of people, or not a lot of people, but a percentage, a small percentage of people start binging in that situation. 
But the thing is, even those people live in diet culture, and they can't help but get sucked into restricting, which is what happens when you binge in this culture, because it tells you you're bad for eating, quote unquote, too much, that if you gain any weight, it's terrible, and you must immediately lose it by restricting your eating. And so even if the binging started out just for self-soothing reasons back when you were a kid— These days, it's very much tied up in diet culture beliefs about how you supposedly should be eating less, which is, of course, restriction. It's restrictive thinking. It's the same effect as restrictive behaviors with food, and usually the two are kind of inseparable. They go hand in hand. And so I'd say that really anyone who binges in this culture, no matter why they started binging initially, is also restricting. And that goes for people all across the body size spectrum, including those in the very largest bodies. If you're binging, look for the restriction and work to heal that. So that's the first point I want to make here in talking about your relationship with food. Secondly, you mentioned that you, quote unquote, appear fit and healthy. And that's another red flag to me that you're actually eating restrictively which I know might sound weird, but in my experience, many of the people who have an image of themselves as being quote-unquote fit and healthy can actually be incredibly disordered with food. We've talked about this on the podcast. The episode with Tiffany Rowe comes to mind as one of them where the person talked about this supposed picture of fitness and health as actually being super disordered. But that is the case for so, so many people who appear on the surface to be so-called fit and healthy. And of course, that's not necessarily the case across the board, right? But in this culture, it's so hard to see yourself as appearing fit and healthy because of the cultural standard of extreme thinness that's foisted onto all of us that says, you know, you're not quote-unquote fit or quote-unquote healthy unless you you reach this ideal of ultra-thinness. And so because of that, I find that the people who do describe their appearance that way are actually often quite weight-suppressed. And weight suppressed really just means that you're much thinner than your own body is meant to be. You don't actually have to look emaciated to be severely weight suppressed. So I say all of this as a preface to discussing your cholesterol levels because research shows that people with anorexia have significantly higher cholesterol than people without eating disorders. And these differences persist even with partial weight restoration, meaning when people are still restrictive eaters but just not as acutely weight-suppressed as they were before with when they were maybe diagnosed with anorexia, they still have high cholesterol levels. That is from a 2019 systematic review that we'll link to in the show notes. That's really good scientific evidence because it reviews multiple other studies. And this cholesterol issue is true, by the way, for people who restrict and binge, as well as for that much smaller percentage of people who just restrict. Researchers believe that the high cholesterol seen in anorexia is caused both by starvation itself, because food deprivation can cause cholesterol levels to skyrocket, And also, the shifts in hormone levels that occur when people are starving um, can also cause cholesterol levels to go up. And I'm not just talking about reproductive hormones here, but also things like cortisol, which is the stress hormone, growth hormone, and thyroid hormones, and all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of hormones that do different things in your body. They can all have an effect on your lipid levels, your cholesterol levels. So based on that evidence and my clinical experience and just some of those red flags that I'm hearing in your question, 
I would say that food restriction and weight suppression are the most likely explanation for high cholesterol in a case like yours. Much likelier than the idea that anything else you've been doing or eating is raising your cholesterol, even if you don't have a formal diagnosis of anorexia. Because we know that only a minuscule fraction of people who restrict their eating and are weight suppressed ever get a diagnosis of anorexia because the diagnostic process is so flawed and so weight biased. I've talked about that a lot on the podcast as well. Um, the episode with Rachel Milner and the episode with Aaron Harrop go into that a lot more. The process of getting a diagnosis for anorexia is very weight biased. And many, many more people actually would meet the criteria for anorexia than do get diagnosed. So, of course, I'm not just diagnosing you with anorexia based on your question because that would be impossible, right? You can't make a diagnosis like that. I would have to see you as a client. Actually, a therapist would have to see you as a client technically because therapists are the ones that do the diagnosis of eating disorders. So this is not a diagnosis, but I'm saying that what you're telling me in your question raises some red flags that you have some seriously disordered eating and that that seriously disordered eating could be causing the high cholesterol. It also is definitely possible that you could have something else going on causing high cholesterol, like a genetic predisposition to high cholesterol, familial hypercholesterolemia, in which case cholesterol-lowering medication would be the best bet, and that is something you can talk to a doctor about. But it really does sound from your question to me like you have the kind of disordered eating and weight suppression that can cause higher levels of cholesterol on their own. And so where I would recommend starting is working on healing your relationship with food, which it sounds like you're already trying to do if you're listening to this podcast. So kudos to you. You're on the right path. But working on healing your relationship with food so that you're not restricting anymore and healing from that restrict binge cycle that you're in so that you can take care of your overall health, including your cholesterol levels. And it's definitely super important right now not to restrict your eating further in order to try to reduce your cholesterol because that's likely to have the opposite effect. If what I believe is true that you are suffering from high cholesterol because of disordered eating, because of restrictive eating, then more restrictive eating is just going to beget more high cholesterol. So what I would recommend is working with a dietitian who is versed in disordered eating and health at every size and working with a doctor, if you can, too, who's versed in those things, or at least helping your doctor, your existing doctor, get on board. And I think working with a dietitian who is supportive of you and can connect with your doctor would also be really helpful. So you can find my list of recommended providers at christyharrison.com slash providers. That's christyharrison.com slash providers. These are all folks that have been on the podcast and that I know are really committed to intuitive eating and health at every size and have a good understanding of disordered eating and recovery. So I really hope you can get the support you need to recover and heal your relationship with food. It sounds like you've been struggling for a very long time. And trust that your body will be able to heal and that you don't need to be eating restrictively in order to manage your cholesterol, that the first order of business is healing your relationship with food. And then once you're healed in that regard, if down the line your cholesterol still is high, then you can talk with your doctor about medication or maybe other tweaks that you can make from a health at every size perspective that might help with your cholesterol levels. But for right now, the first thing I would focus on is the disordered eating because I really think Occam's razor, that's the most likely scenario in your situation. So if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode of the podcast, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions.
And then if you want to ask me your own questions and have me answer them much more quickly than I do here, come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has a monthly Q&A podcast just for course participants where you get to ask your own questions every month and have me answer them. And you get to listen to hundreds of answers I've given to other participants already over the last almost four years that I've been doing the course so that you can work through the nuances of intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. The course also has 13 modules of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating in depth, plus a private community forum just for course participants so that you can connect with people all over the world who are on this anti-diet path and get daily guidance from my team and from me and from each other. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is now available wherever books are sold, all the major booksellers. It's a must-read if you listen to this podcast, I have to say, because it dives deep into the history of diet culture and the ways in which it harms us, and it also talks about how to heal your relationship with food and your body, all the stuff that we're always talking about here, but instead of being scattered across several hundred podcast episodes, it's all in one place with lots of new reporting as well. I really wanted to make this a comprehensive guide to the anti-diet life. Plus, it has hundreds of scientific references and resources to help you break free from diet culture and make peace with food in your body. And it was strongly recommended by today's guest, Elise Resch, actually, who said this about the book. This book will change your life. This well-researched, well-referenced, yet accessible new book will give you all you need to know about diet culture and how to challenge it. Its facts will give you the ammunition to take a deep, hard look at how you may have been suckered into diet culture and will give you the courage to pull yourself out of it and repair your relationship with food and your body. I am asking all of my clients to read this because it is so powerful and compelling. Every practitioner in the fields of eating disorders, nutrition, and psychology will find this book to be one of the most important in their library, and every person who is not a practitioner in these fields will find that this book will change their life. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Elise, for that amazing review. That means so much to me. And so do all the amazing reviews the book has been getting, by the way. So if you've left a review already, thank you so much. If you've read the book and you want to leave a review and you love the book, I would be so appreciative if you would leave a review on Amazon, even if you do not purchase from Amazon. It's great to do it on Amazon because that's where a lot of people get their reviews. Goodreads is another great place to leave reviews. So thank you to everyone who's left reviews of the book so far. And if you have not yet read the book and you would like to, just go to christyharrison.com book to get it. Or you can walk into any bookstore, independent or otherwise, and ask for anti-diet. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Elise Resch. Elise, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be talking with you again for the podcast. Oh, I'm excited too. I noticed that it's been just about a little over a year since we last talked. Well, a little over a year since we last talked in life, but I think it's been like three years since we spoke for the podcast. Oh, was it that long? You're right. Yeah. Isn't that wild? It's like our first episode, I believe, was episode 79. And now we're in, as we're recording this, we're in the 200s. So. Oh. Time goes by so quickly. I know. It's wild. It's so wild. So yeah, catch us up on what you've been up to since then. 
Well, in the last three years, and in the last, I would start within the last four and a half years, I feel as if all I've been doing is writing besides everything else. I've literally been writing for four and a half years, and I think it'll be probably six years of constant writing (laughs) until I give myself a bit of a break. So, let's see, since we last talked, I believe the Intuitive Eating Workbook came out in 2017, and I co-authored that with Evelyn. And then this year, it was so exciting, my Intuitive Eating Workbook for Teens, which I solo authored, came out in, uh, as I say, April of this year. Then Evelyn and I did a lot of hard work on the fourth edition of Intuitive Eating, which will be out next year, June 23rd, 2020. That's what's been going on so far. It's a lot of books. It's a lot. A lot of books. And you have another one too, right? Yes, I do. I'm working on an intuitive eating journal book, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to have a whole different format than the workbooks or the regular books. It's going to be a little creative and people will be able to set intentions and talk about the challenges and their feelings that came with carrying out their intentions. And it's going to teach intuitive eating. I mean, one would hope that people would have read the Bible before that, but uh, it's another way of exploring it. And it's a, it's nice to have a journal. I mean, I always encourage journal writing for my clients. So I think it'll be a, a handy place for them to put their feelings as they're going through the journey. Yeah, and there's so many feelings on this journey, right? So having a place for that, you know, the workbook, I think, is great for like, just the practical stuff. But yeah, I feel like people need a place to just pour the feelings too. Exactly. Oh, it's so awesome. I'm so excited (laughs) to dig into all of this. Thank you. It's just an amazing explosion, too, of interest in intuitive eating. I think it's really telling that, like, you have all these books coming out now, 25 years after the first edition of Intuitive Eating came out, and there's just such an increased interest in it and attention to it at this moment in history. And what's additionally so exciting to me is that uh, registered dietitian nutritionists are turning the corner in such big ways, wanting to learn about intuitive eating and knowing that it's going to give them a a more satisfying career by having this as a way to help their clients get out of diet culture and, and heal their relationship with food and their bodies. That's what's really exciting. Yeah. What do you think brought us to this point? I mean, because as we're speaking, a few weeks ago, you spoke at FENCI, the National Conference for Dietitians, which is huge. And the room was packed, standing room only, and just so many people were interested. So what do you think has gotten us to this place where dietitians are actually picking up this message? Well, I think uh, dietitians are, a lot of dietitians are feeling unhappy in their work. That I've had so many people tell me that, you know, just not fulfilling them. And so when they get their eyes open to intuitive eating, and I think sometimes it just follows the cultural change. And so it's so evident out there in the world that people are getting sick of being trapped by diet, diet culture. And I think that so many of the, especially the young dietitians are on social media and seeing uh, everything that's being written about how much of a prison people are in. And I think that they're following with, oh, wow, people are interested in this. So I want to, uh, I want to learn more about it. So it goes both ways, I think. And I think that so many people who are seeking treatment are finding dietitians who are trained in intuitive eating. And in terms of the world, I actually have a very, I don't know, it's maybe, I hope, insightful way of looking at why it, at this point in time, we are so much more open to intuitive eating and 
stopping dieting. I just really believe it has a lot to do with the women's Me Too movement. It's not just for women, of course, but so many women. Women are starting to say, and others are starting to say, nobody's going to tell me what my body has to look like. I am not going to allow myself to be trapped by this kind of control. And I want to take satisfaction and joy and pleasure back in eating. So leave me alone. I'm not going to conform and I'm not going to try to shrink my body or try to keep myself from eating foods that are so wonderful. So I think that that's a big piece of it right there. And the whole wellness industry where it's starting to be understood that that's so connected to diet culture that it's really kind of a, I don't know, a mask in a way. And so there's been a lot written. There's a lot of a lot of articles, a lot of magazine articles, newspaper articles. The one smash the wellness industry that came out in the New York Times really went viral. So I think there's uh, there's out there in the regular media, out there on social media, and uh, we're starting to wake up and say no more. I, you know, kind of outing my age, <laughs> I was around during the second wave of feminism where. Prior to that, I can only speak for women, but we were, um, my friends and I, we were all pretty much trapped by, you know, just kind of a, a template for how we were supposed to live our lives. And suddenly in the early 70s, maybe even late 60s, we started to hear that there might be another way that we write, we had a right to have a voice. We had a right to have a career in our lives and to do what we wanted to do. And so that was, you know, a long time ago. And now we're coming around again. And I hope that this is going to be even more powerful at this point. And I hope this lasts too. I hope this this time it sticks more because I feel like I wasn't around at the time, but just from what I've studied of second wave feminism and the sort of early women's movement of the previous generation, it seems like it was such a beautiful awakening for so many women and, and you know, certainly had its issues in terms of being like a little bit class privileged and white privileged and all that stuff. But, you know, there was a, a real swath of the population that really woke up to these issues and started to take back their lives. And then very quickly, the thin ideal became even thinner and the strictures of diet culture became even tighter. Twiggy came on the scene a couple years after the feminine mystique came out, you know, the book that's credited with launching the second wave of feminism. And like, it's just so fascinating, as Naomi Wolf says in the beauty myth, you know, that every time women get more political power, it seems that there's this beauty ideal that comes in to be ever stricter and ever more unattainable to like take away some of that power to sand down some of those rough some of those edges that women can you know have been using to sort of pierce through patriarchy i agree with you it's got to be different this time because it's so much there's so much language there's so much out there for people to start thinking in different ways and i i also have thought about how many young women after that time misinterpreted what feminism meant I would ask a client, so are you a feminist? Oh, no, 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 I'm not a feminist. And I would say, well, really, don't you think that women have a right to earn the same amount of money as men do in jobs? Well, yeah. I mean, don't you think that you know women have the right to speak up? Well, yeah. Well, you're a feminist. I think it's it somehow got some kind of negative connotation to it, and people started rejecting it. But I think that's changing. So let's hope. Yeah, I agree. 
keeping fingers and toes crossed and everything. I think one thing that's powerful about this moment in history, I mean, it's so polarized, right, too, because there's like the progressive side of things that does really see these things and is waking up and is about like the Me Too movement and intersectional feminism and all this stuff. But then there's the side that's like very retrograde and sort of wants to go back to the time before second wave feminism, before civil rights, before oh. any of the good progressive stuff has happened, you know? Don't get me talking politically. <laughs> Got some pretty strong feelings. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, same. So there's, so it's like that is one thing that's going on in the world right now that we'll have, we have yet to see kind of how that shakes out. And I really hope and, and believe that we will end up on the side, the right side of history, that progressive stuff will win out, progressive thought will win out. But I also think like one sort of hopeful thing in this era is that people are starting to see the wellness diet for that disguise that it is, right? Yes. And that that was like the sort of cloak that was put on the old patriarchal diet culture to make it seem like, oh, nothing to see here. This is just health and wellness. No worries. And now we're like unmasking that. And I don't know what comes next. And I think diet culture will always try to shape shift into something new. But the fact that we're waking up to that together with feminism becoming maybe moving into its fourth wave arguably now and all of that i think maybe is going to help not let us get sucked back in again to this same churn that keeps happening every time women and marginalized people tend to get more political power well something else that i think is very hopeful is as i observe so many of my younger colleagues like you and others who are writing books and like your new book that's coming out, <laughs> Anti-Diet. I have to tell you something interesting about that in a moment, but I am seeing it spreading and people not just talking about it, but writing about it. There's so many books, wonderful books that are out now and that are going to continue coming out that weren't around 25 years ago when intuitive eating came out. There were a few, but not by dietitians. And so I think that that spreads the word more. What I was going to say about anti-diet is I came across a letter just the other day as I was looking for something uh, that I'd written to someone who was going to become a new friend telling her what I was doing. And this was probably, I guess, 26, 27 years ago. And I said, I'm writing this book with uh, with a colleague uh, about anti-dieting. <laughs> you know, it was an oh. anti-diet book. And that was terminology that long ago. And now you've got your book, Anti-Diet. And I thought, wow, it's coming around full circle. That's so great. That is so cool. And I mean, your book really paved the way for that. I think my own recovery would not be what it was without intuitive eating. And you and Evelyn and, and all of our colleagues in this movement setting the stage and creating this movement, Health at Every Size, Intuitive Eating, helping people get back to that relationship with food and their bodies that we're all born with. I don't think that we would be at this moment that we're at now where I could write a book like this and have, you know, a major publisher not question me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was one of the things that I kind of had, you know, in the back of my mind going into it was like, okay, if I sign with a major publisher, are they going to have like all these changes they want me to make to make it more marketable, to make it more in line with like the other diet books that they sell? And I'm so grateful and so happy with Little Brown, my publisher, who just was like completely on board the entire entire way like never a question and in fact my editor like amplified my social justice points at every turn and like asked really insightful questions that helped sharpen my arguments and there was never any question like there was never any 
you know, oh, maybe you should like change this or don't you want to add some nutrition advice in here? Like never any of that stuff. But, you know, I think to get to the point where this publisher and, you know, these editors and, and people that I worked with were there mentally, I think speaks to how far we've come and how you and all of our colleagues in this movement who are working 25 years ago, 30 years ago to like set this stage, like all the work that you did kind of made that possible. I'm just so grateful for being, you know, a part of this and being able to spread the word. And I'm also so grateful that scientifically, there are so many researchers that are interested in intuitive eating. And there's been over, I think, about 120 studies now validating it as an evidence-based process, which gives it so much more clout, I think, out there in the world. It's not just theory. It's there. It's, it's foundation. But I'm so glad that this was such a help for you as well. It's great. It's incredible. And I think I have a lot of privilege in that I was basically an intuitive eater for 20 years before I had my disordered eating start. It started for me in college. So I was able to get through childhood and adolescence as an intuitive eater because I had thin privilege. Basically, no one commented on my body. No one made me go on a diet. That's such an important point, Christy. You know, I don't think that people understand that, or maybe they don't think about the fact that if you've never thought you have to change your body, then you don't get into that trap. But so many people don't feel that way, or their parents or doctors. I'm just so astounded by the impact that some of the medical community has. I have a 16 and a half year old client just got her driver's license just, uh, you know, so excited. And she told me that when she was eight years old, her doctor told her parents, you better watch it. In fact, she ran into her doctor in a, at a store and so happy to see him. And then afterwards, this was a little older than eight, I think, the doctor texted her father to say, you know, I'm really worried about your daughter's weight. No, maybe she was about 10, I think. She was about 10. And she was, you know, just going into puberty and needing to gain that weight that all little girls have to, and I think little boys have to gain as well. It just doesn't show itself in the same way as for little girls in terms of getting a period. But it was just so horrifying. And that was the beginning of her road down to anorexia at this point. It's heartbreaking. It is. And I mean, I'm curious to talk about your book for teens because I think there is so much in that, right? Like teenagers now, you know, I was thinking about the landscape that teenagers are in now when they're reading this book and, and working with you. And it's like, this is a generation that grew up on that weight policing being so in their face. And this is a generation that grew up on Michael Pollan, Marion Nestle, wellness diet sort of advice of like, don't let them eat processed foods. Don't let them eat sugar, you know, all this fear mongering about different types of food. And like that really has to be creating disordered eating that looks very different than maybe the disordered eating of generations past. Well, I agree. I have a very strong and large adolescent population of clients. And I will say 90% of them, I don't know exactly, were taught to be worried about food by their parents, worried about not just worried about their bodies, but worried about food, scared to eat certain things because their parents trying to be good parents. I mean, I don't want to say that this was any intentional abuse. Parents didn't know any better some of the time, but they were trying to bring up their kids, quote unquote, healthfully. And it has impacted them and boys too. I have boys and girls I've had some clients who are in transition also, and it's affecting everybody. And so I was very excited to be able to write this book for teens because 
giving a teenager the intuitive eating book is a big chunk, you know, to read. And most of them don't want to. They've got so much work to do in school. But the I wrote the workbook in a way that would appeal to them. I kind of used as best as I could teen language and very concise and concrete ideas for them to think about. I also switched around the intuitive eating principles in that book. I played with it and and renamed not the principles so much, but the chapters that related to the principles. So I could really take them down a path of making a decision for themselves to get out of this and to change the disordered eating and the eating disorders they're in and give them real concrete reasons for it. And then these exercises, with a, which really brings them to have some very uh, challenging thinking as to how, why they're caught up in it and what are some of the challenges in making that change. So it was exciting for me to be able to speak to them. And I find that they're loving it, as are my adult clients. Some of them <laughs> are using this book. I, I, I know it's interesting, but let me tell you why I think that it's helpful for adults. I think that each of us carries with us our whole lives, the little kid in us and the teen in us, and that developmental stage of being a teen is about autonomy and you know doing what is right for for you and so the adults who are getting in touch with their own internal teens and allowing themselves to go back to the years when they were chronologically teens and look at where this all started for them there's been some profound changes and realizations for some of my adult clients with it but for the t- the teenagers it really speaks to them about yeah they don't have a lot of control over their lives so the one thing and i made a big point of this in the very first chapter the one thing that they actually do have power and control over is what they put in their mouths and listening to their internal wisdom and so it was an appeal for them to look at intuitive eating as something that would give them that sense of autonomy versus going on one of the latest craziest fad diets which has nothing to do with their autonomy which is an external force on them. Yeah, that's such a powerful message. And I think, I mean, that also speaks to the idea that so many people develop eating disorders in teenage years and adolescence as a way to try to control things that feel out of control, also as a response to diet culture and increased pressure to adhere to a certain standard, which is again, coming from the outside, that's not autonomous, it's responding to external pressure. And so, this idea that like intuitive eating is a way to reclaim that sense of agency, I think is so powerful. Exactly. And so as they start to understand that the eating disorder is really a false sense of control because it really doesn't give them, you know, any serious lifelong control in their lives and intuitive eating is forever. I mean, they can tune in and do what they want. I mean, I do sometimes have to often have to talk to parents, bring them in and help them change the language in their homes and help them understand that their their children and their teenagers really uh, have wisdom inside and start giving them giving them that power rather than trying to tell them what to eat. Yeah, how does that go with the parents? Because as you said, these are parents who think they're doing the right thing by restricting food and maybe have a lot of their own internalized wellness diet stuff or other diet culture stuff that they're dealing with. Well, I appeal to them from a psychological level. I just love the psychology behind intuitive eating, and I love psychology <laughs> in, in its biggest form. So I, when I'm talking to a parent, I actually had a mother in yesterday of a 14-and-a-half-year-old boy whom I'm seeing who has anorexia nervosa, and I don't want them in any way to feel you know, shame or feel blamed. I just want to help them understand that 
what they've been doing with their best interest at heart is actually psychologically problematic for their kids. So by trying, this particular mother was always worrying about cholesterol and worrying about, well, the father has some quote unquote weight issues and really trying to prevent her son from having these problems and having any health issues. And and he had been a little larger boy when he was going to starting to go through puberty and and to try to help her that regardless of any true nutritional science, psychologically pushing that on a child is only going to make them go the other way. And so it's a it's tricky, but I, I could see in this mother's eyes that she was able to own how the impact that these she and her husband had had on her son without me, as I say, without me shaming her and be able to say, okay, I've got to let go of some of my beliefs, even if I can't really get into it and really believe that you're telling me, it, you know, that sugar isn't evil. And by giving him this freedom now to make decisions for himself and letting him know that there are no good foods and bad foods. Okay, I'm getting it. And she really, I was really pleased with how she surrendered to the understanding of the psychology of it. Yeah. And I think that's actually such a good way into, you know, for people who are really new to this message, it can be probably a lot easier for them to accept that, okay, there's this sort of reverse psychology that happens where the more you clamp down and forbid certain things, the more that the kid or whoever, you know, the person is going to gravitate towards those foods and or end up eating out of control, feeling out of control with food, whatever, because they've been restricted, even if they can't understand the nuances or if they have, you know, some parents I imagine have pretty like strong beliefs themselves and, you know, yes. fad diets like keto or Whole30 or whatever, where they just can't see the science for what it is. They're wedded to their own fake science or whatever. So, And it's amazing to me how many parents don't really understand the developmental stage of adolescence, that it's so important for their teen to have a sense of agency in the world and that this is by taking it away from them, by giving them these messages of negativity about food. And trying to control their their teens' food, that they're going to get them some, one way or another. That healthy adolescent's going to act out. So let's not promote acting out in this realm. I mean, I wish parents could understand that in every realm too. <laughs> yes. you know, I feel like I uh, definitely had my struggles as a teen to try to individuate, and ended up doing a lot of things that society deems bad. I was like a bad kid because I basically just needed to have my autonomy and my needs for autonomy met and wasn't getting that recognition from my parents or specifically one parent in particular. Right. I'm so often helping people understand that this shows a healthy ego when an adolescent is needing to have their own voice or as an adult who is, quote unquote, failing at dieting. I mean, this is a sense of a strong ego because people don't want to be told what to do, especially teenagers don't want to be told what to do. And so they're not bad teenagers. You know, they're just trying to express this need to have a, a sense of who they are and, as you say, individuate and form their ego identity. And the more we can educate people about that developmental need. It's so important. It starts early in childhood. I have a great respect for Eric Erickson, who was a German-American psychoanalyst and behavioral psychologist, and he created 
the eight stages of man, which, you know, now I'd, I'd call them up and I'd say, hey, Dr. Erickson, we got to call it eight stages of human. <laughs> but in any case, you know, these, these stages that we all humans need to go through to develop healthy personalities and healthy egos. And it starts, the autonomy piece starts at 18 months old, mm. you know, when toddlers are starting to run around and realize that they're separate from their mothers, the umbilical cord was cut a long time ago, and now they can open up cabinets and pick their own toys and pick their clothes and decide what they want to eat and not eat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, helping people understand that. I've always been a believer that if you really want to understand what's behind something, it's so much more apt to be able to make change than if you don't understand. Well, and it's interesting, too, to think about those stages as like building on one another, because I think in a lot of cases, especially now, I think I see, you know, parents getting involved in their kids' food so young, like where 18 months, they might already be putting the kid on a diet without calling it that. But it's like, you only get so much of this, you don't get any sugar, you don't get this, you don't get that. That's right. And so if that need for autonomy and, you know, that sort of low level individuation isn't met at that point, then by the time they get to teenage, the teenage years, they're probably extra prime to rebel. There's probably a lot of that growth and that individuation that still needs to happen. So here's the really exciting thing that Erickson has said. He, in his theory, believed that at any point in someone's life, that person could go back to a stage that wasn't accomplished. So let's say this happens at 18 months and that can be healed. It's not as if you're doomed for life. So I see intuitive eating as a way of healing some trust, which is the first uh, developmental stage. And then this autonomy, the second developmental stage, we as health practitioners, as dietitians or psychotherapists, we can help people go back to those very early stages by what we teach them by our role modeling and help them heal so that they can go on and have much better lives than being trapped the way they are. It's such a hopeful idea and such a hopeful message. And I do think, you know, with intuitive eating, like we've talked about before, it's the default mode, right? It's, way, it's the way people are born eating. It's the way babies instinctively know how to relate to food and their bodies. And so we all have that capacity. It's just, it gets taken away. And for some people, it gets really cut off or really buried, I guess, you know, you could say. And so the process of healing and reconnecting with intuitive eating is about unburying it and, and uncovering that wisdom that's already there. And what, what's also so exciting for me, I mean, I love my work. <laughs> and what's so exciting for me is that since I've been doing this for 37 years and have intuitive eating has been out for 25 years now, I have been able to help so many of my clients heal their own disordered eating, and then they go on to have children of their own, and they're raising them as intuitive eaters. Some of these kids are out of college now, and they have never had a problem with eating because of the way their parents have raised them. So rather than, you know, some parents who say, oh, no, I don't, I'm going to protect my child from having the problems I had because I was a larger child. No, it's not that, <laughs> you know, because they're, they're not protecting their children in that way. They're making it worse for them. It's, in fact, teaching them to trust their bodies and to know that they have this wisdom within them. That's just so wonderful. And so to see, you know, the the products of these people who've done their own work and are raising their children that way, it's phenomenal. That's so incredible. And especially because they live in diet culture, just like everyone else, right? So like, they're still having to deal with all these pressures that we all deal with. But it sounds like the way that they were raised gave them a certain resilience towards that, that they they know how to navigate it. 
I think that's a perfect word, resilience, because yes, they see it, they see it in their friends. And they I have one client who's got 13-year-old twin daughters, and they're just, they can't even understand why these kids have such problems, you know, because they've been raised so well with intuitive eating. And they hear it. They hear what the kids are saying. The other kids, they hear what's out there. They, some of them are still are already on social media and reading things. But they just, they, they negate it. They go, this is, yeah, I don't get this. Why are they doing that? That's so silly. That's amazing to be able to just sort of let it roll off like that and to dismiss it without a thought, you know, or without, without really grasping it. I mean, how cool would it be if everyone could be like that? <laughs> well, the world is changing, Christy. The world is changing what we were talking about before. I really do think it's spreading. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope the next generation has more people in it that are raised like that. I wonder if there's a study to be done on those folks, you know, the people that have worked, the parents that have worked with you or worked with any intuitive eating counselor, you know, and healed their relationship with food and then gone on to raise their kids, comparing folks in that camp, the kids in that camp to the general public in terms of their relationship with food? Well, anyone listening to this podcast, if you're up for it, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not a researcher, but if anyone is, how great would that be? And I, I could give them lots of information. Well, I know we do have some researchers listening too, and that is one thing that I love is putting ideas like that out there and seeing people run with them, you know, or having ideas like that get talked about in our community and then seeing people do studies that support what we know and what we what we know in clinical practice, just like those, you know, 130 studies or whatever you're mentioning about intuitive eating. That is such a wonderful testament to what you had already been practicing for years before even writing the book. Right. And when, when I met Tracy Tilka, who is one of the most important researchers or one of the most uh, fundamental researchers in intuitive eating, and I just thanked her for all the work she has done. And she said, oh, my goodness, Elise, thank you for intuitive eating because it's given me this amazing fertile field to, to do research in. So call out to the researchers. <laughs> I know. They're so needed. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, this dynamic between research and practice that I think we have to have the research there in order to justify the practice in this this day and age of evidence-based practice. And that's a good thing, but it's also like, you know, I think it needs to be there to justify also to the larger culture why this is important. Well, people do get impressed by hearing it's scientifically based. It's a foundation for them to believe in. So I'm, I'm glad it's out there. Of course, you know, we've been doing this work well before the studies came out. But having the studies really helps. Yeah, it definitely gives it some additional gravitas. Yes. And I feel like that in a perfect world, I mean, in my perfect world anyway, we wouldn't need that, that, you know, people could sort of justify things based on what actually feels healing for them and what helps them recover and sustain their recovery. But, you know, I think that's not the world we live in. So we got to have the evidence. Well, I think... Another positive possibility is getting into the schools, and I know there are universities now that are using intuitive eating as a textbook in their classes, and if we can get it to grade schools and you know, change the language there, I think, it's, I think it's spreading. I think it is happening. Yeah, I've definitely heard from people who are who work in schools, who are teachers or who have maybe some admin like an administrative role that has some agency over what gets taught about nutrition and food. And that's really exciting because right now I feel like what gets taught nu about nutrition and food in schools is often <laughs> so diety, so problematic, so disordered 
teaching people to be afraid of certain foods and to count calories and restrict. And it's just horrible. And I once had a 10 and a half year old boy with anorexia. They were coming to do physical fitness training or, or testing with them. And he started to hear about muscle versus fat. And boom, he was on his way. He started restricting his food. He didn't want to have any fat on his body. He wanted to have more muscle. So there's a lot of things that can happen in the schools that are negative. Some schools, I think, weigh the kids and then call out the weights. I mean, I've heard horror stories about that. Yeah. And that's such a setup for disordered eating that can last into adolescence and beyond. That's just horrifying. That's right. We need to stop that for sure. Yes, we do. Well, I'm curious to talk a little bit about the new edition of intuitive eating too, because we've been talking about like how long that, you know, the book has been out in some form Mm -hmm. and just how it's evolved over the years. So I'm curious what's new in the 25th anniversary edition that you can discuss and how have you learned and grown since you, you published the first edition? Well, I think what's most important is to understand that, well, now it would be about 26, 27 years ago when we started writing the books. We were not evolved the way we are today. We didn't understand the issue, social justice issues. We didn't understand weight stigma the way we do today. So we made some statements early on that we are completely reversing now. Uh, in the first book, it was something like, find your I don't even remember how it was stated, but on the cover, it said something about find your healthy weight, you know, which would not be anything we would ever talk about today. So we are being kind to ourselves for the fact that we could only know what we could know back then. And interestingly, not the second edition, because it wasn't really a revision. It was just an edition of the eating disorder chapter. But in the third edition, we really tried to remedy a lot of that. And then when we went over this third edition, which was written nine years ago, we realized, oh my goodness, we didn't get as far as we needed to. So this fourth edition, we are hoping that we have fixed it so that we are current with with everything that's happening in the world today and we're not triggering anybody and not having some false implication about weight in this book. So that's a big piece of it. And that goes through the whole book. Then in the Raising Kids chapter, which is kind of my baby, I added a piece on what's called baby-led weaning, which is kind of a, the term is kind of a misconception. It's like baby-led solids where babies are given (laughs) essentially intuitive eating for babies when they're ready to have solid foods. And the main focus on that is that the family eats together, the family eats a variety of foods, there's no good or bad foods, the baby sits at the table and grabs at what they want to grab at, and there is actually a focus on not feeding them pureed foods, but actually allowing them to play with food and put it in their mouths, in the front of their mouths, versus the spoon going in the back of their mouths, there's less, there's less choking with it, and It may seem revolutionary, but it's been around forever, you know, well before there was pureed food. And so there's a there's a piece on that that's new. And then Evelyn has put in, you know, an update on on the research. So, you know, we've done a lot of editing through the book. I think everybody will love it, I hope. I'm so excited for it. I cannot wait. Thank you. Just the fact that you, I, I so appreciate you being transparent about the process and the evolution because it really is... 25 years is a long time for a book to be around. And like, you know, I look at stuff I wrote nine, 10 years ago and I'm like, oh yeah, I've really come a long way too, you know, or even when I first started the podcast almost seven years ago now, like that first season is behind a paywall for a reason because I'm not, it's not current with my thinking now. Christy, I think we have to have self-compassion as 
professionals. We have to not beat ourselves up for things that we couldn't have known about yeah. until we knew about them. And I think our job for all of us is to have our eyes open and our ears open to understanding the mistakes we've made and to changing that. What, what troubles me is the people I run into, especially a lot of people of my generation who are so close-minded, who poo-poo so many of the things that they need to be open to. And so, you know, I have compassion. So does Evelyn. We have self-compassion for what happened then. And we are grateful for the fact that we're open to making that change. Yeah. I mean, I'm so grateful for, for you for that too, because not everybody is like that. Like you said, there are people in your generation that are just so closed off and it's like, this is the way, this is the way I've always been doing it. And people of every generation really that are like that, you know? But yeah, the self-compassion is so huge. And I think especially as dietitians too, like we are so steeped in weight stigma from the get-go. I mean, not just in diet culture, but also in our training, it like amplifies the weight stigma that we pick up from diet culture and fat phobia and food phobia is rampant in dietetics training. So I think especially for dietitians to come out of that and come into a, a way of thinking that's antithetical to that, it takes time and it takes self-reflection and effort and community input as well. You know, it's all of it. And that's why I was so astounded and grateful to see over 2,000 people in the room <laughs> at Fancy <laughs> uh, at the national conference, for those who don't know what that is, of dietitians, to see all of these dietitians of all ages being open to the change. And, and I was thinking that some of them weren't even born when the first edition of Intuitive Eating came out. I mean, there's some young people there who are straight out of school and it's all new for them and wonderful. So yeah, it's, it's very encouraging. It's so cool too, that there's some people who are just learning that at the beginning of their career. I really wish that I had been able to do that. I'm so grateful. Although I will say I run a supervision group once a month and I always offer it uh, an opening for students to participate in one way or the other, whether it's in person or, you know, on Zoom. And I often get comments about how frustrated they are in their internships, what they're being taught and what they are now understanding is just so wrong and destructive and not knowing how they can speak up to their supervisors and Kind of like throw them the book, you know, have them read this. Maybe they'll open their minds. Uh, I know. One can hope. Yes. I mean, I think that is the that is the challenge, right? It's like students having to sort of toe the line in a system that is so weight biased and so admired in that already. Well, I, I was remembering recently when I was in graduate school, which was in the 70s, <laughs> I had a it was I guess you would call it medical nutrition therapy class now. It was called nutrition therapy. I don't remember what it was called, actually, something like that. And the teacher asked us to write a paper, and I disagreed with what the teacher had to say. So I wrote two papers. I wrote the paper the way she wanted it, and then I wrote the paper the way I believed in it. And I thought, if she's going to fail me, she can't fail me, because I gave her the paper that, <laughs> <laughs> that met what she had taught, but it was just, it. I was not happy with it. And so I was challenging it. I don't think she liked me very much. <laughs> <laughs> Did you already have an inkling back then of what was wrong with conventional nutrition wisdom or how did that come to be? Well, 
I had no intention of going into the field of what, and I keep using the quotes, but I have to, weight management. I just didn't want any part of it. I even knew then that diets didn't work. And I had had my own eating disorder based on restriction and then binging, you know, restrict and binge, and had gotten out of that and it healed that. And I knew that dieting was so similar to it. But yet in graduate school, we were taught to give people meal plans with exchanges and a diabetic exchange list. And even for people who didn't have diabetes, but using using that. And it just made me so uncomfortable. My gut said, this is not what I want to do. So I trained at a clinic at Children's Hospital here in Los Angeles for developmentally disabled kids. And I planned to have that as my career. My work was going to be with developmentally disabled kids. And I didn't get the referrals for that. I kept getting referrals from doctors for people with high cholesterol, people with diabetes, tell them to lose weight. You know, that was what the, you know, the language was. And I didn't know what to do with it. I just really didn't know what to do with it. And so I did make meal plans. I didn't make them as strict as I had been taught to do that. And I told people these aren't diets, but they'd come back after a few weeks, months, however long it would be and say, I can't do this. And I didn't know what to say to them. I didn't know how to fix it. So I think that I was wanting to avoid that because I didn't know any other way. So yes, I was uncomfortable with it way back then. And in terms of the, I was kind of my early twenties involved in a family that was all about health food. The Adele Davis, who was a very old time uh, writer about health food, and that had been put into my brain. And it was like, oh, I don't like this, but I'm doing it because this is the way I think I should eat. This is the way I think I should tell my clients to eat. So it was, but everything was conflictual. And until intuitive eating was born, I was not really that happy doing the work I was doing. I think that's helpful for people to hear, you know, anyone listening at the beginning of their career, really any stage of their career who has that sense. Because I think I've heard this from a lot of people who've been on the podcast too, where they were like, I was going to quit dietetics. I didn't want to be a dietitian. I myself actually almost quit dietetics too. I was this close to finishing my internship and was just like, I'm making money as a book editor and freelance writer. I don't really need this. You know, I thought at the time, I was like, I, do I really need these letters after my name? Maybe it doesn't matter. I have all the schooling and the training. And so I was going to just walk away from it. And I'm so glad I stuck through it to the end, but there was a lot that wasn't, wasn't clicking, that wasn't feeling right. And I think if you can like listen to that intuition and sort of say like, what is it about this career that doesn't really feel right and follow that towards something better. And there's so much depth and meaning in doing this work. And there's so much gratification at seeing people's eyes light up and recognize that, that they're not failures and that and this whole thing I was talking about, about their successes at ego identity when they can't stay on a diet and to help them their whole body language changes. It's it's as if they can just, you know, relax and say, oh, thank goodness, I don't ever have to do this again, this old way. And it's just wonderful doing that work. And the other way was not wonderful. <laughs> so it's a yeah, complete paradigm shift. I want to talk a little bit too about intuitive eating with eating disorders, because I know you said off mic that you use the new book, the teen book with teens with eating disorders. And, you know, I get asked a lot how people can reconcile or use intuitive eating with eating disorder recovery. So just curious kind of how you approach that. Okay. 
So one of it's one of my bugaboos that this myth that you can't use intuitive eating in treating eating disorders because so many people have a reductionist view of what intuitive eating is. They think it's all about hunger and fullness. And then they say, well, if it's only about hunger and fullness, people who have eating disorders can't be in touch with their true signals, so we can't use it. They don't understand that there's so many other aspects and principles of intuitive eating that from the get-go, helping people make peace with food, making all foods emotionally equivalent, helping people have respect for the way they t- talk about their bodies and you know how they treat their bodies, helping people look at the rules that have been in their lives and the quote-unquote food police that have been, I gotta stop saying quote-unquote. <laughs> I do it all the time. It's probably... <laughs> <laughs> the food police that you know have been trying to control them and helping them understand about autonomy and and showing them here's one of the most important things that I'm able to do with with clients is to say here's this vision for what life is going to be like as you nourish yourself as you re-nourish yourself as you are able to really trust the signals your body gives you you're going to have this freedom that you haven't had with the eating disorder because you're always feeling scared and trapped that you're going to do something wrong and with intuitive eating you're completely free and and so helping them understand that early on is so important. It's it's a vision I've had I've had clients say, Oh, I can't wait till I can actually trust it. And I say to them, with hunger, if you feel hungry, trust it. That's a that's a true signal. It's just that you can't trust the fullness, especially if someone has restricted and their weight is low and everything's slowed down. So that's the general idea of it. And using the workbook gets them to some looking at some of the thinking that brought them into their eating disorders. So translating it from it was a diet to it was restriction. And I have seen, especially this little girl I work with who's 10 and a half, almost 11, we've been doing some of the exercises with how, what it was like for her when she stopped eating as much and the rules she had, desserts were bad. And so there's such a similarity between diets, in fact, diets lead to eating disorders so often, and the restrictive eating disorders. And the emotional, the chapter on emotions, helping people dealing with their emotions and not having their eating disorder be the way that they're dealing with emotions. So I really think that getting down to that nitty-gritty of when it all started when they and and as you said earlier Christy so many people their eating disorders the roots of them began as kids and as adolescents so they get back to that so yes I'm using it with that too and it was a delight to me because I wasn't intending it so much for eating disorders but when I started to to use it with some of my clients I thought wow this is this is great for them too I mean, yeah, because a lot of it is these self-reflective questions and sort of experiments you can do with your own, you know, mental experiments or experiments in your life with trying different foods. And it's like anyone can do that. You don't have to have, quote unquote, perfect hunger and fullness cues, not that they're ever perfect, but they don't have to be fully back online in order to take advantage of, of that kind of mental piece of recovery. And the big theme in intuitive eating for me has been, for a long time, satisfaction. And so working with clients who have eating disorders who aren't really getting any satisfaction in the amount that if they're not eating enough or if they're eating more than their bodies need, they're not having satisfying meals and helping them understand that they have a right to have their needs met. And one of their needs is to have pleasure and satisfaction in this world. And so... That comes out in this book, and that's why the second chapter in the teen book is about satisfaction and starting to figure out the ways that you can enjoy food more by taking off the rules and by setting up environments that are 
pleasant and I really like that it's front and center like that because it is, you know, as you say in the other book, it's like the hub that drives the wheel of intuitive eating, right? So it's it's nice to have that put forward. And I also think, I mean, <laughs> my favorite principle, I guess, if we're naming favorites is reject the diet mentality because it's so foundational and it's so, I think, important to everything else. And I basically wrote a whole book about reject the diet mentality. Right, you know? it's like, right. Anti-diet. Yeah. Well, that's always going to be the first one. What, whatever I would write, it would be the first principle. But then I jumped around after that. And I think in rethinking, we weren't going to do a major overhaul in this way, but in my rethinking of intuitive eating, I would have put satisfaction as the second second chapter, which I'm also doing. I'm writing an intuitive eating journal book right now, you know, it's opportunity to journal feelings. And I'm using satisfaction as the second chapter in that as well. Yeah, I feel like it is sometimes, especially if people go through it methodically, the principles kind of one by one, satisfaction can feel a little late because you want to bring that into everything. You want to like infuse it in the work that they're doing to honor their hunger and make peace with food and the foods that are satisfying and stuff. And I think it's very hard to honor fullness if you haven't been thinking about satisfaction. So, and if you have, obviously, if you haven't made peace with food, I mean, you have to have food security. You have to know that you can have the food, you know, whenever you want it. And then recognizing that when you're comfortably full, it just doesn't taste as good afterwards. So, satisfaction. Yeah. I feel like with fullness, too, that's one that I actually, when I'm working with clients or in my online course, I kind of like, turn down the volume on that one for a long time until that, you know, it's like, you can kind of come back to that when you're ready. But in my experience, it tends to fall into place once everything else, once all the other principles are sort of being practiced consistently. Yes, I 100% agree. 100%. Yeah. And it's funny how people, I mean, I think because of diet culture and that thinking that people are coming into it with, I get so many clients coming in where the first, you know, it's like, what are you working on in your relationship with food? And it's like, stopping when I'm full, you know, that's like the first thing or stopping when I'm full and stopping emotional eating. And <laughs> it's like, oh, the, the, when you, when you know, you sort of know that the cart is before the horse when the emphasis is on stopping those things because people just don't know. And I think they're doing that some of the time, Christy, because it's a new rule for them. So a lot of people morph intuitive eating into another diet which we want to guard against. But, you know, if they have this rule, I have to stop the moment I feel comfortably full, then it's a new rule for them. And I really help people guard against that. And it's so amazing and important. I think that you and Evelyn do guard against that so well. And that like in every talk I've heard you give and in the books, it's always really called out specifically, like don't turn this into a diet. And yet people still manage to turn it into a diet because diet culture is that pervasive. What would you say, because I, I definitely have a lot of people listening, I'm sure, who are in that boat of turning intuitive eating into a diet. What would you say to help people stop doing that, to help break that mindset? I would start again with self-compassion to help them understand that they're reaching to make this another diet because they're so scared that they can't trust themselves. And they're so scared they can't trust themselves because that's been what they've been told by all the diets throughout their lives, you know, this is, you're not doing it right. This is the right way, you know, it goes back and forth over the years. So helping them understand that it's their way of trying to control something and that it's going to really, by looking at it as a diet, it actually sabotages their ability to trust their inner voice. 
but to not be, I, I think one of the most important things is to not be angry at themselves, to not judge themselves, to not blame themselves that this has been, so, you've been brainwashed, you know, so how understandable that you're going to take this and then try to turn it into the next diet, thinking you're not dieting anymore, but let me show you how that is going to sabotage your process of really getting to this place of freedom. So that's where I would go with that. And and it, again, helping them see how making a rule like that is diet mentality. I love that. I think self-compassion is such a key foundation to intuitive eating. Actually, when I teach intuitive eating, I also teach self-compassion first just to like set the stage. I always say come from a place of curiosity, not judgment in terms of everything that's going on. Just be curious, be neutral, don't judge yourself, be understanding. So you did have a period of eating so much that you were so physically uncomfortable. Okay, let's just understand, be compassionate. Maybe you were going through a really hard time, or maybe you were with friends who were all talking diet and you wanted to be part of the group. And and then you tried to do that again and you started overeating. So yeah, I think the understanding the why behind it and that like you're not broken because you're eating that way is so important because I think diet culture wants people to think they're broken because they're eating to a point of discomfort or they're broken because they're emotionally eating or whatever. And actually, you're not broken at all for doing those things. You're just responding in a very human, very understandable way to your circumstances. And so let's look at your circumstances and maybe there's ways we can help improve those so that you're not driven to do these things that are natural coping mechanisms for that. That's right. And I think too, speaking of circumstances, you know, I love that you brought up food security earlier. I think that's another aspect of intuitive eating that's starting to get more attention and more discussion in social media, especially, but that, you know, I think people don't always have the capacity to engage in the full expression of intuitive eating when they are experiencing food insecurity. But to me, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. To me, I would say it's still intuitive eating when you're food insecure and you're working to get more stable access to food, or maybe it's working on the circumstances that would allow that, like working on getting a job or more benefits that can support you and allow you to have food access. That to me is also intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is not, it has to be all 10 principles checked off the list. You know, it's, it's a practice and a process. And if you're in that process with whatever circumstances you're in, that you're working towards fundamentally self-care through food, taking care of yourself by getting enough food, and not letting diet culture interfere with that, whatever place you're at, that's intuitive eating. Well, it's intuitive living. And it's also about you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We have to have the basic needs met. So if someone doesn't have the access to fruits and vegetables and is living on fast food, well, good, they're getting food in them. We cannot be judgmental. And I, I think I, I said something in my talk about intuitive eating is a privilege in its, you know, in its highest form. We To really fully be at peace with food, you have to be able to have the security to have the food. So I like what you said, Christy, about it extending to finding ways to have better self-care if they can. And people who can't have compassion for them. Yeah, absolutely. There's no mor moral obligation to be pursuing health or to be attaining health, whatever that looks like. Well, you know, the basic our basic need is to get energy in our bodies. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> I think I mean I may have a degree in nutrition. 
However, I think that just eating is what's <laughs> most important. This this ideal of high nutrition, I just don't think it has as much of an impact on people as much as just getting food, eating, you know, getting nourished. I completely agree. And I actually think this like ideal of high nutrition, the sort of like self-actualization through nutrition is just bogus a lot of the time. Like it's based on oftentimes very shoddy or early stage science that's not borne out in the long term or no science whatsoever in the case of a lot of fad diets. And it makes for a lot more harm than good, actually, when people get so fixated on that like optimization through nutrition. And really, when you strip it back to the basics, I think that's where a lot better well-being really happens. Right. And, you know, again, going to privilege, I mean, you have to be very privileged to be able to decide that you're only going to eat these things and you're not going to eat those things. It means that you've got access to everything and you choose not to have certain things going back to if you don't have that access, just eat, you know, get whatever you can to eat. Yeah, and that the intuitive eating someone is going to engage in in a situation of food insecurity is going to look very different than the intuitive eating someone's going to engage in in a situation of greater privilege. You know, people get very righteous about what they're doing as if there's only one way, whatever their way is, <laughs> and they have to let go of that and be open-minded and, and to, to looking at the whole picture, the bigger picture. Yeah, especially with food, I feel like people get so siloed and so, you know, in this camp of where are the keto people over here, where are the whole 30 people over there. And, and another piece of it, which we taught, we touched on earlier, is that everybody is trying to find some sense of control in this universe that we have no control over, in, in essence. And so they're grabbing even that, you know, I have compassion for people who grab onto those things because they think it's going to give them longer life or give them better health or whatever it is when really it doesn't have that much power. And we have to help people understand that we can, we just have to manage our lives. And I like manage better than control. Just have to manage our lives in the best way we can within the context of we just don't have control. Right. And there's nothing wrong with us for grasping too. I think that's such an important aspect of self-compassion as well as to like, to say that of course you want to diet. Of course, you've been, you know, you've been told all these different ways every way to Sunday, you know, that you that you need to control your eating in order to have a good life, in order to have health and well-being and like maybe you've experienced chronic health conditions or problems in the, in your life. So, of course, you want to heal those. And the way that we're being told to do that just isn't affording us what we what we seek. And what I found in a very interesting way is that so many people come to me who have been seeking medical care for especially GI problems, and they start eliminating a lot of different foods. And what ends up happening is when they become intuitive eaters and they let go of that, they're, you know, they're feeling better than they've ever felt before. I have a, another 16, a different 16-year-old client who for years was trapped by one doctor after another saying she couldn't eat this, she couldn't eat that. And she never felt good. She was feeling sick the whole time. And when she let it all go, she, she actually discovered intuitive eating on her own and found me, wanted to come see me. And now she's so healed from her eating disorder and her GI tract is just working really well <laughs> because she's nourishing herself. That's so amazing when that happens. And I, I really believe so much in the power of healing disordered eating, healing the gut, you know, and that's such a buzzword these days too, of like heal the gut. And people have all kinds of wild, you know, diet companies and programs have all these wild 
diets that they're prescribing for supposed gut health and gut healing. Well, they catch on to everything that they can make money catching on to, right? Yep. And it's all commercialism. And it it also drives people further into the disordered eating that likely caused it in the first place. And we have research showing like up to 98% of people with eating disorders have gastrointestinal issues, which is no surprise, right? And what about the anxiety when you're trying to follow something that's so difficult to follow and you feel so deprived? And talking about the microbiome and the gut-brain connection, I mean, they're anxious all the time. So, of course, their stomachs hurt. Right. (laughs) So, so clear. Yeah, that connection is so real. And reducing anxiety about food and other things in general, too. But especially, I think, disordered eating, there's so much anxiety about food that it's only natural if you're anxious about food that you're going to feel bad. And if you can reduce that anxiety, it brings such tremendous relief. And for some of my clients who are concerned not so much about weight, but they're concerned about health and they're worrying about everything they put in their mouths, I'll say, you know, that worry causes high cortisol levels (laughs) and the cortisol is going to be, you know, more destructive to you than eating that candy bar, you know, so so stop worrying about it. (laughs) It's so helpful to put it in perspective like that too, because I think people just, I mean, our society and diet culture these days just makes food out to be the be all end all of health. And it's just so not. No. It's not. You know, I I often say to my clients, you know, that all foods break down to carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and if it's protein, nitrogen, you know, we break that all down. So why are we making such differences in foods? (laughs) And they're like, really? (laughs) Really? You know? Yeah. It's all the same stuff. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. It all breaks down chemically. If you've had some chemistry, you know that, you know. (laughs) I feel like that's like the benefit of knowing nutrition information too, is being able to use it for good in that way to help bust some myths or give people some information that sort of awakens wonder about the body and its abilities. Well, that's why I actually like to plug registered dietitian nutritionists because we have to have that science and that information where there are people, I, I live in California and we do not have licensure here for dietitians. So anybody can open up an office and say, I'm a nutritionist and, and start telling people what to eat and they don't necessarily have the science behind them. Yeah, but that science gives such an extra layer of opportunity for this discussion and yes. richness. Uh, well, I love talking with you, Elise. I could talk with you forever. But Thank you. Yes. I love it too. It's wonderful, Christy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, tell us where people can find you and learn more about your work. So I have my own personal website, which is EliseResch.com, and I have lots of things on there. I have a whole um, link to something I call my words of wisdom just from all these years of gathering some pieces of wisdom for living life. And I have talks I've given and explanations of intuitive eating. It's a pretty personal website. And then there's the intuitive eating website, which is intuitiveeating.org, not .com, but .org. And that will give information about all the science, the studies behind intuitive eating. And for people who want to become certified as intuitive eating counselors, it gives that information. And for the public, for resources to find people who have been trained in intuitive eating, that's on that website as well. And then if anybody wants to write to me, I probably shouldn't put that out there, but it's just eliseresh at gmail.com. It's really easy. I didn't make it complicated. (laughs) People can just find you. (laughs) I'm easily found, yes. And then your books are coming out. The teen book is out now, right? And then the 25th anniversary edition is out in June. 
Yes. And then the the journal book will be out 2021. It takes two years. Well, as you well know, mm-hmm. Christy, <laughs> it takes a long time from the time you sign a contract to write a book until it's actually out there. Mm-hmm. I was going to say on the bookshelves, you know, if there are any bookshelves <laughs> left for them to be out. So um, the bookstores. So Yes. So it's one after another. It was 2017, as I said, with the Intuitive Eating Workbook, and then it jumped to 2019 with the teen book and 2020 for the fourth edition, anniversary edition, and 2021 for the journal book. So exciting. I'm really, really psyched to see all these books come out and get my hands on advanced copies. I cannot wait. (laughs) And I'm also consulting with a couple of dietitians on writing an intuitive eating related book. I can't give you the specifics of it. So there are people who really, you know, people who are intuitive eating counselors who are writing some more books, the more the merrier of, you know, legitimate intuitive eating books. There are a lot of people who have co-opted it and aren't really legitimate and there's uh, we just actually saw something about some book that is named exactly the name of our book or revolutionary Uh, program that works by some some guy i don't know who it is and it's just outrageous i feel like i saw that the other day and i was meaning to write to you about it and then i got sidetracked but it just it was like so random that it was i mean obviously trying to capitalize on your good name but just horrifying And like with books, you can't really, you can't copyright a title, right? So it's so frustrating to be able to, you know, discern what's the real one. Exactly. So that's very troubling, but I just hope that people will find the source (laughs) and get the best information. Well, I'm doing my best to point everyone towards you and to know that you are the original intuitive eating pros, the original authors of intuitive eating, and really the only book that has the title intuitive eating that I would ever point anyone to. So thank you. And we have a lot of support out in the community on social media, people, you know, being angry that other people are giving out misinformation. So I'm grateful for anybody out there who is letting the public know to be careful about that. Yes, it's yeah, it's rampant trying people trying to co-opt intuitive eating into a diet, but it is not a diet and you're doing amazing work to clarify that. So <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Christy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, great opportunity. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Elise Resch for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you as always for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode and subscribing to the pod on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, whatever that may be. You can see all the places to subscribe at christyharrison.com slash subscribe. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we mentioned, plus a full transcript, just go to christyharrison.com slash 228. That's christyharrison.com slash 228. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is now available wherever books are sold. Just go to christyharrison.com slash book to order it online or pop into your local independent bookstore and ask for anti-diet. And if you've already read and loved the book, I would be so grateful if you could leave a nice review on Amazon or Goodreads and upvote the other great reviews. 
A big thanks, as always, to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Tway, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasik, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. Our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. And I'm your host, Christy Harrison. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Ooh.